all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today Colonel James J. Kulikin. Uh, he is a U.S. Marine retired colonel, and uh, we're going to have an interesting conversation about the Legion of Valor, which I don't think we've ever talked about on Veterans Radio. So, uh, Jim, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, as I said, we want to talk specifically about something that you're involved in, the Legion of Valor. But before we get there, um, how did a nice kid like you from Pennsylvania end up doing a career in the Marines? Well, I was um, in college in Philadelphia. And, uh, of course, when I was a young guy, there was a draft, so everybody was going to serve. And I was in the Air Force uh, ROTC, which was required in those days for the first two years of college at my university. And um, I chose to stay in the uh, what they call the advanced part of it, which means you'd be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force when you finished. And um, <clears throat> I did that. And then when I came back to start my junior year, they gathered all of us together because now you're part of the team. And they told us that there's such a backlog of uh, lieutenants in the Air Force that we wouldn't be called for two to three years. And I thought, I can't afford to sit around for two or three years, so I dropped out. Um, <clears throat> not realizing that when I did that, I lost my deferment. And I got a draft. Well, they, they didn't tell you that up front, did they? <laughs> when they called you all together, they didn't say, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> no, no, no. I just assumed that it was okay after everybody. So anyhow, I got a draft notice, and I thought it was a mistake because I assumed if you're in college, you had a deferment. Well, without getting into all the details, that wasn't the case. So um, I was told that I had two choices. I could either report to Fort Dix, New Jersey in December, or I could join another branch of the service before that date. So I went back to Philadelphia, and I went to um, 
the old courthouse at 13th and Chestnut, where all the recruiters were located. And my goal was to join something, anything, that let me stay in college. So the first officer of the Marine Corps, and they had a program that um, you join while you're in college. You did your training during the summer. And when you graduated, uh, if you kept a certain academic average, you'd be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps for three years. So I thought that worked, and that's what I, I did. And it turned out, turned out to be a much longer career than three years. <laughs> you didn't read the fine print in that contract they had just signed. No, no. Uh, <laughs> no. My, my goal was to stay in college <laughs> because I was in a uh, basketball scholarship. And, of course, if I left college, most likely I would never get back. And uh, was there a particular field of study that you were uh, going towards? Well, at the school that I went to, uh, we all had to have a major in philosophy and then another major. So I majored in philosophy and also management. Okay. Well, I don't know if the philosophy was going to help that much in your uh, in your military career, but this wasn't supposed to be a career. You were just doing your t- three years and then you'd be out. Um, but obviously things changed. What uh, As you started out in, the, in that first uh, tour, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the beginning of your Marine Corps career. Well, in the Marine Corps, um, unlike the other services, um, we don't consider anything that is pre-commissioning as training. It's just screening to see who we want to commission as lieutenants. And then after you commissioned, all you attended a five-month course at Quantico, Virginia called the, the Basic School. And that's where you really trained to be a Marine officer. And then that's where you get your specialty, and I requested infantry, and that's what I got. So after that, I joined an infantry battalion uh, in Camp Pendleton. Trained for a few months, and then we deployed to the Far East for uh, uh, 13 months. Uh, come back from that and set Camp Pendleton, and my three years was coming to an end, so I um, took some time off and had some interviews, and I realized that I enjoyed the Marine Corps a lot more than I thought I did, so instead of working for some company or corporation, I stayed in the Marine Corps. And I got married, and did work for my wife and family, so it just continued on. Well, certainly that uh, this was the time of the Vietnam draft and that first tour uh, was a lot of guys experienced. Um, but it really is at that third year mark where you, you can get out and you're thinking about right. getting out. Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did your family react? How did your friends react to say you're staying in? What are you nuts? <laughs> what, what was the, what was the temperament back then? Well, <laughs> of course, my father, we lived in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. And um, um, all the men worked in the coal mines. And it was really an interesting situation because growing up as a child or as a kid, even as a teenager, uh, I lived in a small town of maybe 2,000 people. And again, all the men worked in the coal mines. And the thing that was interesting is that there was nobody wealthy or poor because everybody had a job working in the coal mines and got about the same amount of money. So um, yeah, that was kind of normal. And then after, after World War II, um, oil became the fuel of choice for heating homes as compared to coal, and the coal mines went down, and it became a very depressed area. So um, most of the young men then my age and my brother's age, we all left that part of Pennsylvania and went elsewhere. So it was kind of a um, an interesting career. I think my mother was uh, less, um, less enthused about it because um, – <laughs> Uh, you know, she was a woman who went to the eighth grade as my father went to the 10th grade. So things were kind of, I, I guess you'd say those people at that time didn't have what we would call joy. For them, it was survival because, you know, they grew up in the Depression, had World War II, and then the economy in that part of Pennsylvania went down. So they looked upon life as having security, like being being a 
police officer or being a school teacher or being an insurance salesman, something like that. So having one of their sons decide to stay in the Marine Corps was a little bit different, but I think they accepted it and they recognized it. And then shortly after that, the Vietnam War started and it just kind of went on from there. And I had, um, my father was in World War II and then I, a younger brother who also was in Vietnam about the same time as I was. So it just became a natural thing at that time. And, and uh, did your brother serve in the army, or or did the air force snag him? They they lost they lost one well, he, one boy. Maybe they got the other one. <laughs> no, unfortunately, he he was in the army and um, he was wounded very seriously on the battlefield, and they had to give him transfusions. And this was before they tested blood, and unfortunately, he got bad blood. So he eventually recovered from the wounds, but he subsequently passed away from uh, blood poisoning and, and hepatitis. Well, I think people don't understand uh, often sort of how challenging military medicine was and and still is, although it's improved so much. And a a lot of what we have in civilian medicine is because of what was learned uh, in in, and through military medicine. And this is probably a good example of that. Yes, it is. Yes, very much so. So it sounds like, Jim, that the military provided uh, economic opportunity, ability to travel some, uh, maybe educational opportunity that just wasn't going to be available in the coal mine area of Pennsylvania. Well, I I went to college in in Philadelphia. And, um, of course, when you're growing up, you know what you know. You don't know anything else. And when I went to Philadelphia, I realized that there's a different life than the coal mines. And after the first year, I knew I was not going back to uh, the coal mines. And, and as you were, uh, talk to us through the progression of your uh, career in the, in the military, additional assignments, uh, those sorts of things. Well, I was an infantry officer, and, um, and, and the Marine Corps, of course, is a smaller service than the other services. And the other services provide a lot of services to the Marine Corps. For example, um, the Navy provides all of our doctors, dentists, chaplains. Uh, the Army helps us when we need uh, new equipment in terms of developing it and so forth. The Air Force helps us with refueling of our aircraft. So the Marine Corps is much more focused on on combat than the other services might be simply because they provide services to us that we don't have to replicate uh, in a non-combat fashion. So um, typically in the Marine Corps, you like my, my specialty was infantry which is very intense, obviously. And typically what happens for officers is you go through your career, you usually have one, one, one tour of duty in the infantry, then you have another tour of duty doing something else. So like, for example, during my career, I, I trained lieutenants at the basic school that I mentioned before. Um, I taught at the Naval Academy. I did an assignment in, um, in Italy at a NATO headquarters and, and things like that. So you do a lot of other things as well. Like, for example, my wife um, is a, school teacher and she uh, stopped teaching school after our children were born then went back to teaching after they went to school and my wife taught in eight school districts and three universities in six countries during our time in the marine corps holy so cow what a, she had a heck of a career didn't she <laughs> that's, yeah, a, she did. that's extraordinary <laughs> You probably served more in the Marine Corps than I did. <laughs> well, as we all know, uh, and, and uh, Jim knows that uh, uh, my spouse served uh, for a while as well, uh, you know, you can't have a career in the military without the support of your family. That's right, yes. In fact, I would, when I would train lieutenants, my point to them was, if you're married, your spouse has to be ready for this. And if not, then you've got two choices. Uh, because it's a um, it, it's a, a, a very involved 
process for uh, for the family. And I, I I think that the the families serve more than the the individuals wearing the uniform because uh, they don't get the recognition that we do, but they have to suffer all the uh, all the difficulties of it. Like for example, um, when I was in Vietnam, I was wounded, and my family was my wife was notified the next day, and about four or five days after that, our son who was 17 months old had emergency brain surgery. So, you know, it's a difficult process for those uh, for this, the families. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. They sacrifice greatly. Uh, Jim, give us uh, the time frame here. When did you get commissioned and when did you retire? Uh, I'm sorry, Jim. When did you uh, get commissioned and, and what year did you retire? I, I was commissioned uh, in June of 1960 and I retired in October of 1990. That just helps frame it for our listeners, and we're talking to Colonel James J. Kulkin, uh, Marine, uh, retired, about uh, his experience in the military. Uh, but we're going to turn now to an organization that he is the past commander of, and it's the Legion of Valor. I, I don't know that people um, outside a small circle really know what the Legion of Valor is about. So, Jim, why don't you uh, educate the veteran radio listeners? Sure. Yeah, the, the Legion of Valor, first of all, that's the longest standing military organization we have. It was founded um, in about 1890 by the Civil War veterans and the American Indian War veterans. And uh, originally it was for the individuals who had the Medal of Honor. And then it expanded out to um, individuals who had the next award, which would be the Service Cross, such as the Navy Cross, Air Force Cross, or Distinguished Service Cross. So the Legion of Valor is made up of individuals of the Medal of Honor and any of those other three um, awards. Now, in the early 1900s, around 1910, the Medal of Honor Association started. So now uh, it's two kind of distinct organizations in that you have the uh, Medal of Honor and Legion of Valor. Now, we do have a few members still in the Legion of Valor who have um, the Medal of Honor, and they're in both associations. But for the most part, the Medal of Honor Association stands, and then we have the Legion of Valor. And um, it's a small, again, a small organization because um, obviously you, know, you have to have one of those top two awards. And um, our objectives, and then what happened is as, it, as, as years went on, it, it, it first it was the Medal of Honor, and then the Medal of Honor, and the Distinguished Service Cross. Then later on, the Navy Cross was added, and then finally the Air Force Cross was added to it. So um, we meet once a year, and um, uh, the commander decides the location where it's going to be. So this coming year, we'll be meeting in Fredericksburg. I'm sorry, meeting in Williamsburg, Virginia. And um, our our goals are to continue the memories of the active duty and retired and reserve members of the armed forces. We want to uh, promote fellowship among them. We want to make sure that. Um, we take advantage of the um, opportunities for the armed forces to um, serve our country. And then um, we also want to make sure that we uh, stimulate patriotism in the minds of our young and um, individuals. So, for example, we um, we give awards every year to um, the uh, cadets in the um, ROTCs. We also have a, a civilian award which is called the Silver Cross for Heroism, and we award that to anybody who, can, who saved somebody's life. 
now that can be any anybody in the country, and then we make them associate members of the Now, the difficulty is, as with the Medal of Honor, um, the opportunity for individuals to receive those awards has gone down dramatically. So we're, we're, we're kind of running out of guys and, and gals in some cases who have those awards. So, for example, during, during the Vietnam War, the uh, Navy Marine Corps awarded approximately 400 Navy crosses, and about two-thirds of those were posthumous awards. And during the entire time we've been fighting in the Middle East, we've only awarded 24 Navy crosses, and probably half of those were, were posthumous. So we're coming to a situation now where we're probably looking at um, how do we kind of close down the active part of our services, but be able to continue it on uh, through other means. Well, it's it's an organization, as you say, that's been around since 1890, yes. and, and it it holds a special place because the Distinguished Service Crosses recognize, you know, uh, acts of real valor, um, yes. and it's, you know, a lot of different reasons. One maybe doesn't get the Medal of Honor. Uh, but but uh, and that can range from you know command structure to uh, just hey I was just doing my job I don't you know I don't want to participate any further too and there's been times uh, certainly Congress has investigated um, bias or discrimination in giving out the Medal of Honor sure. but the, but the Distinguished Service Cross is a very noteworthy um, military award. And there's a lot to be learned, I think, from those who have received the Distinguished Service Cross about what they're willing to do for their comrades and their country. So it, it has to be a really amazing group of men and women who get together annually uh, for these uh, conferences, uh, Jim. It is. And, you know, I, I'd like to, if you don't mind, Jim, just take a minute to talk about a, a young man from Michigan who received the Distinguished Service Cross with me. His name is Frank Dozeman. That's D-O-E-Z-E-M-A. Frank was from Kalamazoo, Michigan. A young man, finished high school in 1967. And his goal was to continue living and working on the farm with his brothers and, and his uh, parents. But in 67, of course, we were at war and there's a draft. So Frank um, volunteered to be drafted. And which is a very popular thing for young men to do when the draft is on. Because if you were drafted, you served for two years. If you enlisted, you enlisted for three or four years. So a lot of young men would volunteer to be drafted so they could go for two years and then go back and finish their, continue their life in the civilian, in the civilian world. So Frank, um, after basic training, was sent to be a field radio operator and then to Vietnam. And he became my, he became my radio operator. Now, people may wonder why you'd have a Marine having an Army guy as a radio operator. Well, during the Vietnam War, we had advisors with all of the Vietnamese units, battalions, and above. And um, they were mostly Marines and, and so, mostly soldiers and some Marines with them. So I was one of the advisors, and Frank was my radio operator. And on the morning of um, the Tet Offensive in Hue City, which would have been uh, December 31st of 1968, there's a four-day ceasefire, and the ceasefires, for the most part, were honored uh, by both sides, and there'd be Vietnamese holidays and, and, and American holidays, like Christmas and Fourth of July and so forth. And there's a four-day ceasefire, and um, the North Vietnamese launched an attack in South Vietnam, and in the city of Hue, they came in with 10,000 soldiers. And our unit was there, but 
there were no other, there was no American units in Hawaii and only a few of the South Vietnamese. And Frank Dozema grabbed a machine gun and raced to a tower in front of our position. And that brave young soldier bought us a few minutes of time and saved a lot of lives. And he was seriously wounded. So I went to get him and I brought him back. And um, he was seriously wounded and, uh, and I knew he was gonna die. But I, I gave him two shots of morphine before I carried him back. And I knelt down next to him when he was on the ground um, when the medics were taking care of him. And I said, Frank, we're gonna get you out of here. And when I come home, I'll come to Kalamazoo to see you. But then I said, Frank, I've got to go now. And before I could leave, in a, almost a whisper, he just said, take care of our guys. And that young man, I think, represents the American veterans because his only concern, even though he was dying, his only concern was to make sure he took care of his buddies. And Frank was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Bronze Star, and of course, the Purple Heart. And he's buried in, this, in a small country cemetery uh, up in Kalamazoo. And you can't listen to the story of Frank Dozeme without having chills run down your spine. These are important stories and pieces of history not to be lost. And unfortunately, we're, we live in a time where nobody teaches any history at all, let alone uh, any uh, personal accounts. And it's the personal accounts that really make whether it's the Vietnam War or the fighting in Korea or in Afghanistan or Iraq, come to life and be something that folks can relate to. So um, I, I think it's really important that the Legion of Honor, you know, works at preserving these stories and telling these uh, pieces of history so that they just it just doesn't all evaporate and get lost. Yes, that's true. In fact, um, you know, recognizing that our organization is getting older and, and moving on, <clears throat> we are having the history of the Legion of Valor written at this time. And I hope that by next year at this time, we'll have it published. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, forward-thinking move. Uh, and it, was, it was interesting when we decided to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there's a um, <clears throat> rather famous um, author by the name of Mark Bowden, and Mark did Black Hawk Down and also um, Hawaii 1968, which is about the battle for the Tet Offensive. So when we got ready to do our history, I contacted Mark and um, said, what, what do we need to make sure we include in here? And he said, you have to have oral histories. Because he said, he said typically the military guys and gals don't talk about it. And it just kind of fades away. And he said, what you have to do, you have to preserve that. And he um, and because of him now, in our new book coming out, we'll have a lot of oral histories about uh, individuals with the Medal of Honor and the Legion of Valor. Because, again, it, it's true that uh, most of them don't talk about uh, what, what they did. Well, we tell a lot of these stories on Veterans Radio. And I, as an interviewer, and I'm uh, recognizing the moment now where this, I'm not getting the story because Almost every one of these guys, and certainly if you talk to a Medal of Honor person or somebody with a distinguished service cross, you're going to tell me you were just doing your job. And your concern wasn't, is never about getting an award or being recognized. It's about your buddies. It's about your men. And Jim, uh, you are a member of the Legion of Valor because you've received the Distinguished Service Cross as well. Um, give us the thumbnail of that. I know you don't want to, and you're going to tell me you're just doing your job, but we have to preserve the history, as you just said. 
Uh, well, first of all, I, am, <clears throat> I had the choice of getting the Distinguished Service Cross or the Navy Cross, and I chose the Navy Cross uh, just because of my background, obviously. <clears throat> but um, it, it really had to do with the, uh, the Battle of Hawaii City during the Tet Offensive. And, uh, you know, it's what was it? a 28-day battle, so it's very difficult to, uh, to summarize it other than um, um, we were attacked by uh, 10,000 North Vietnamese soldiers. And um, through, the, through the really, really, really good hard work of the Vietnamese military and the United States military, um, we won that battle. Well, and more so, Jim, uh, you were subjected to, as others were, intense small arms fire uh, B-40 rockets. Uh, you often, during that period, had to disregard your own safety and and uh, move rapidly to various guard posts and men who were hurt. Um, there's, a, there's a history of your experiences laid out in the Legion of Valor uh, website. Um, you know, the, you don't get the Navy Cross for just doing your job either. It, it is, it is a um, acts, recognition of acts of valor that, again, need to be told. People have to understand that men for decades have been willing to make these kind of sacrifices. And a country has to hope that in the future, men will also make those sacrifices, don't they? Yes, and I, I, Jim, I believe they will because, excuse me, the, certainly any, anybody who got awards deserved and all that. The problem is that we have thousands and thousands more men and women who deserve those awards who didn't get them. And I think we have to keep that in mind as well, because um, when, when you look at when you look at the American the American people from the time of George Washington up to the present time, when our country was in peril, young men and women came forward and said, I'll serve. And, you know, when I when I think of different times in our history and you think of how how good they were in World War Two or elsewhere, the thing is, they were good in all the wars. Uh, we just recognize some more than others. But the American veteran is the unsung hero of the United States, because when you look at every single conflict, young men and women came forward and said, I'll serve. And I, I don't think I don't think we can honor the veterans enough. And that's why on Veterans Day, you know, it's a national holiday, but veterans don't celebrate Veterans Day. On Veterans Day, we do two things. We, first of all, honor those veterans who are no longer with us. And secondly, we remember those veterans we served with. And in many cases, you never see them again because of time or distance, but you never forget them. You remember them forever. Absolutely. I'm going to circle back to where you just started a minute ago, which was, um, there are a lot more folks who deserve these uh, recognitions than actually get them. And, and there's been articles over the last, you know, certainly five or ten years talking about how few distinguished service crosses have been issued in this global war on terror. And mm-hmm. and how is, is that because there isn't this act of valor going on or is there some um, uh, DOD bias on this or, or some other unspoken concern about elevating uh, these awards. Um, have you, as part of the Legion of Valor, thought about how the heck can there be so few of these? What's what's going on? Well, <clears throat> I, I suppose there are a lot of reasons, Jim, but I, I think, first of all, you know, some something has to happen. In other words, you have to do something, and then somebody has to see it, and then third, somebody has to write it up. And all those things don't happen all the time. In fact, most of the times they don't happen at all that. 
in the Middle East recently were much different than the typical conflicts we've had in the past because, you know, we were able to put bases there that were almost like being back home. You have McDonald's and we have gymnasiums and so forth. And they'll be there for a couple of days and they'll go out on a, on a mission and they in, in, in tough, hard fighting for five, six, eight, 10, 12 days, then go back again to a, living on the base. <clears throat> so I don't think it, I don't think it was the same kind of war. And I don't think people had the chance to observe as much as they did in the past. But I, I think when you look at certainly the, the, military men and women who have served in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and elsewhere, you know, their heroism is certainly as great, if not more than anything that we experienced. Because for me, like in Vietnam, every day was the same. We were in combat and just kind of pushing it on. And there's a lot more opportunities for people to observe what you're doing as compared to, I think, in the Middle East. But I don't think there's anything that was deliberate that caused the fact that we have fewer awards, I think it was just the circumstances that were that were different. But I, I think the service and valor was the same. No, I, I agree. I think the service and valor has to is the same. Um, I think you've hit the point where, where, where the war now that we've fought in the war on terror, there's smaller units or forward operating bases. There's much mm-hmm. less uh, command eyes on. Um, and so it may not be seen. And it's certainly there's nobody out there with a pen and piece of paper writing this stuff down right so, so you don't have the same sort of backroom admin support at headquarters maybe right. so it, it's it's interesting to think about it in that context and um, just you know wonder uh, whether or not uh, the, the country uh, is doing a disservice by not uh, maybe opening that up and recognizing that a, a little bit more so well, I certainly think I certainly think that um you know, the, the, our, our enlisted men do most of the fighting. And I think certainly for them, we have to, we should be doing more more, more recognition of, of what they do as compared to what, say, the officers do. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, uh, again, sort of a history of that debate about who should get awards and should the officers get them or should they only be right. for the enlisted or vice versa. That's kind of gone both ways. But uh, Jim uh, Cooligan, uh, Colonel, retired from the United States Marine Corps after 30 years. Um, if folks want to know more about the Legion of Valor, uh, is there a public website that they can go look at? Yes, if they just go to the legionofvalor.com, uh, they'll, they'll get it. And also, we have a, a very good museum in Fresno, California, and uh, if you've had a chance to visit Fresno, that's a great thing to see. But also, you can uh, access our, our website for the museum, and it uh, it's a it's a great place with um, that covers all of our history because <clears throat> everything, all of our history that we have in terms of uh, memorabilia is at, at is at the museum. And also, I would also, Jim, before we close, I'd like to just. Um, Congratulate our uh, military men and women who fought in Afghanistan, and um, we we welcome them home. They did a magnificent job. Uh, we're proud of them, and um, they all deserve our, our recognition and, and credit. And certainly the uh, the thirteen uh, service members who lost their lives in the last couple of days of the battle. Uh, absolutely, and and we should remind all Americans, everybody listening to Veterans Radio, that uh, we've been kept safe for these twenty years as well. No, yes, right. no, no such attacks in the homeland. So that's why we were fighting what we were doing. So I also want to say that your website has a great list of books. 
that uh, talk to um, heroic and valor events surrounding uh, folks who have the Distinguished Service Cross or Navy Cross or Air Force Cross. So again, if you want more on this subject, you want to know more about the Legion of Valor, go to the website, look at the museum, look at some of the books that they have posted up. I think you'll find it real interesting. And Jim, we're going to be interested in seeing and hearing from you a year from now when the Legion of Valor has its uh, oral history book out. Yes, and also we're going to put it online when it comes out, so it'll be everyone, everyone will have access to it. Well, that's great, and thank you for spending some time today with Veterans Radio. Thank you. I enjoyed it, Jim. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800 693 or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graph O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46 also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, you are dismissed.